listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm Mike Gaston. I'm your host. Glad to have you guys along. The date is Monday, January 23rd, 2023, and this is episode number 127 of the podcast. 127, 127, that's pretty cool. I hope you guys are doing great. I uh, am glad to have you along. I want to dive in today and begin a discussion. I don't think I'm going to finish it. I know I'm not going to finish it today. On some material that I've been reading, there's a book I read recently, and I actually ended up having to read it twice, uh, back to back. But there's a book I read recently by an author named Eric Vogelin. Now, Vogelin was a professor, academic in political science, political sciences. He died in, I think, like 1985. I think it says in the back of the book. Yeah, he died in 1985. And he, he really, I mean, it's, it's funny because he's, his thinking is so groundbreaking and it's so relevant to where we are today, yet I've never heard of him. And the book I read was written in 1952. It was actually published in 1952. So essentially, Vogelin gave a series of lectures, I want to say five, maybe six lectures in 1951 at Chicago University. These lectures were then collected. The texts of the lectures were collected. Vogelin wrote an introduction to it. They put it all together and published it as a book the next year in 1952. Now, this book is, you know, 180 some odd pages. It's under 190 pages. And it's called The New Science of Politics. You know, you hold it in your hand. It's like a trade paperback. It's, it's not that big. You go, okay. And when you open it up, you know, the text isn't dense. It's not like this, all this stuff compacted into, you know, under 200 pages. It's, it looks like I could knock this out. And, and that was kind of my attitude. Now, I discovered the book. I, I, there's a, a thinker, consultant, author, thinker named Aaron Wren, R-E-N-N. And if you're in the evangelical world, you may have heard of Aaron. He's an interesting character. Uh, and I don't say character in a, in a derogatory way. He's an interesting guy. He's, he's done some really fascinating thinking uh, with regards to evangelicalism and where it's at, et cetera, and just different ways to think about, you know, where the church is at in, in the current American society. But I subscribe to his Substack. I, I, I'm a paid member. I think it's probably 10 bucks a month or I, maybe it's five. I don't remember. But as kind of a perk for his members, he had a private interview with a friend of his named Dr. Mabry. And Mabry uh, is also in political science, and, and he, he talked about the work of this Eric Vogelin. Well, I'd never heard of Vogelin before. So I was on this, this private, you know, Zoom stream, whatever you want to call it, was listening, um, and I was intrigued. I mean, you know, Mabry kind of had a pre-written th- thing that he read through trying to explain Vogelin's thinking and his work. But as I was listening, I thought to myself, this, there's something about this. And I wasn't necessarily grasping the gist of Vogelin's work. I was just listening to Mabry talk about it. I had no context, knew nothing about Vogelin, which I found a little surprising. I mean, I, I, not that I'm some, you know, brainiac or anything, or that I'm really deep in the political sciences, but I've heard a lot of the major names of, of the thinkers that are, you know, that get bandied about. I just never heard Vogelin's name. And, uh, but as I was listening, I didn't necessarily understand everything he was saying, but I was getting the sense that there was something about Vogelin's thinking that ran counter to some of my own assumptions and that there was something about it that provided hope. 
that provided hope, hope for our current situation, hope for our future. Now, as a Christian, I have hope. I mean, I, I have eternal hope. I'm not, and, and not just hope for my own salvation, but I have hope for a perfect world, the esch, eschaton, like th- this whole thing's going to come together at the end and be made right. I have hope for that. But I, but I also don't, you know, believe that that's necessarily going to happen in this world. I understand that to be a kind of transcendent thing, something that happens outside of this material universe. And, and one of the dangers with that for Christians is it, it can create a sense of fatalism. It's almost like, well, there's no use doing anything about anything because it's all going to burn anyway, or, you know, it's all messed up. There's nothing you can do till Jesus comes back. I don't know why I did that as a Tennessee country boy, but... Um, but there's this attitude that like, well, there's nothing you can do about it, so why bother? And just focus on spiritual things. That doesn't, that doesn't comport well for me. That doesn't sit right for me, with me. I mean, I get it. I do get it. I'm not, I'm not saying I don't agree that Christ won't make things right in the end. I believe that. But I don't also agree that it's moral or right to sit by and let things go to the proverbial and seemingly literal hell in a handbasket. By the way, if you hear a little ice clinking here and there, yours truly, your gracious host, is um, imbibing a bit after a long, hard day of work. It's Monday. <laughs> it's Monday and I'm having a cocktail as I record this. And, and uh, apologies if, if there's anybody out there that is a teetotaler. Um, you know, and, and if that is the case, email me because I, I'm always cognizant. I don't want to do anything that causes a problem for somebody or say something. But if you do hear a little tinkling, clinking there in the glass, that's just um, me taking a sip here and there. All right. I shouldn't do that because then I lose my place. Uh, and when I say lose my place, only in my mind. I haven't written out a whole scripture that I'm reading off to you. But this sense of hope, uh, it seems immoral to me to just kind of defer everything to the transcendent. It seems immoral to me to check out of this world as a believer and just kind of let it spin and fall apart. And and partially because as a human being that has procreated with children and hopefully someday grandchildren and generations, you want to do what you can to bequeath to the next generation the best possible world. And when I say the best possible world, please do not get images of Greta Thunberg or Thunberg or Thunderberg or whatever her name is. You know, how dare you, you know, you immoral human beings consuming the planet. Uh, I don't mean the best possible world in that sense, but but like, for instance, if there were a way to have a society that were moral and kind versus a society, society that was immoral and, and harsh, I would want to do what I could to help create a moral and kind society because I want my children to have that. I want my grandchildren to have that. I want my neighbors and their families to have that. There's a sense of obligation to the subsequent generations to, to take this thing that has been given to us and steward it well so that we can hand it off to the next generation and they can continue that work. And so when you look at the world the way it is right now and you go, my goodness, my goodness, it's a hellscape in many ways. 
I don't mean to say that like the American experience is so hellish. I don't like, like we have it so good, but it is, it is hellish in the sense that it is anti-Christ. It is dehumanizing, animalistic, self-centered, immoral, desacralized. We've taken something that is beautiful, this world and our lives, and, and we're just destroying them. You know, the, the hot button, I mean, the, the fact that we're in a society where children who can't own firearms, drink alcohol, go to war or vote, but at, you know, I don't know, eight years old, I don't know what they, five years old, can decide that, you know, I don't think I'm a boy anymore, I think I'm a girl, can then be given, you know, life-altering, life-altering medications to start with. You know, I've talked about this before, but... You know, the puberty blockers have a permanent effect. They sterilize you. They make you incapable. If that, if that kid later says, oh, what was I? I was going through a phase. Or my, or my mom kind of pushed it on me because she wanted to be in with her group and to say, yes, I've got a trans child because that's the thing now. It's kind of like a designer handbag. You got to get a trans kid. Um, if, if the child starts taking those drugs young and then later decides after, I don't know how much time it takes, but I don't think it's like one dose and you're done. But repeated use of puberty blockers results often in sterility and inability to reproduce. Go figure. So you look at that and you say, this is immoral. It's evil. It's destructive. I mean, I can't, there are not enough superlatives uh, to describe how bad it is, how dark it is, how twisted it is. And so as a, as, a, as a thinking human being, and I, and I don't even claim to be that moral. I'm not over here going, and I am the paragon of morality. I'm not some, you know, Southern Baptist preacher from the 80s trying to convince you that, that I'm so moral and throw money at me because we're going to fight the devil and the Democrats. <laughs> uh, but just as a, as a, as a, responsible adult, you say to yourself, I, I should do something because I want to make sure that the society that I leave behind works. I want to make sure that the society I leave behind leaves space for people to find God, leaves space for people to live life on their own terms. I don't mean that in a prideful, selfish way, but I mean that they have autonomy over themselves. I want to leave behind a society that recognizes that, that the human being is sacred. Now, as a Christian, I get there saying, because we bear God's image. And if you bear God's image, then you are sacred. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're an image bearer of God. And for that reason, you deserve respect. You deserve uh, rights. You are not a means to my end. I'm not to just consume you for what I want. You are an end unto yourself because you bear his image. I want to leave behind a society that respects that image, respects our humanity and this, this, the sacral nature of life, private property, liberty, all these kinds of things. I'm not trying in my mind to say, well, we need to start a Christian nationalist state. It's an interesting concept, but, I'm that, but I don't feel compelled as a Christian to do that. I just feel compelled as a responsible adult to say, 
look, I know I can't bring the second coming to bear. I know I can't create heaven on earth, but can I do my part to leave behind a society that is good and moral and founded on ideas that respect the human being and leave room for my progeny, my, my descendants, my neighbors, my community, my nation, for the individuals and the families and the groups within those generations to find truth and to live life on their own terms. To push back against a totalitarian state. To push back against a society that insists on you and I living lies if we want to make payroll, if we want to get the mortgage paid and put food on the table and care for our children. I'll say it. You shouldn't have to go to work and celebrate Pride Month. You shouldn't have to. If other people want to do it, that's their business. And even that I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, I guess I'll never get voted in as a Supreme Court justice. (laughs) But at the least, we should have a society where people shouldn't have to celebrate this stuff in order to get paid. And so, gentle listener, I was listening to watching this stream where Aaron Wren had Dr. Mabry on. Mabry, I hope I'm saying his name correctly. I've not met him. I believe it's Mabry, M-A-B-R-Y. Mabry, Mabry, was talking about Eric Vogelin. And there was something in the way that Mabry described Vogelin's thinking that caught me. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. There's something in there that, I, that makes me suspect there might be a way forward. There might be hope. Because what I bump up against, and I don't know about you, but as a Christian, there's one part of me, as I said before, that says, look, things aren't going to be perfect until Christ returns. And you can't impose upon a society some type of Christian nationalism. This is what John Calvin did in Geneva. It didn't work. Now, I'm not a historian, so I can't sit and tell you all the reasons. I don't really know exactly, you know, what went wrong. I've, I've, there's some fascinating content out there about Calvin and Geneva. And uh, if you're not familiar with John Calvin, you should really look him up. I think it was the 1500s. He was invited into the the city of Geneva through a series of events, and he became kind of the spiritual authority. He never took over as like the ruler, but essentially had spiritual authority over the city, and he turned it around uh, for quite a period. I mean, economically, socially, and so on, they were doing great. It fell apart. It got too harsh, too judgmental, too brutal. And he had uh, rivals and the civil leadership, the the um, they were resentful. Uh, the, the spiritual authority went pretty far and wide and had a lot of power and there was resentment. And eventually he, he, they brought him down. Uh, they used his own kind of his own system that he had construction constructed against him. So, so what I'm getting at is I don't believe that the solution is that we take some type of, you know, Christian approach to, or an approach of Christianizing the nation, meaning we enact laws that say you have to go to church, you know, you have to tithe. Um, if you get caught, you know, doing this or doing that, all these kind of biblical, almost Old Testament-like things, there are, you know, severe punishments for them. Now, on the other hand, what we're doing now isn't working either, which is like kind of let people do whatever they want and now look at where we are. So, I mean, it, I... I I've struggled with that. And then on the other side, I've, you know, this idea of like, well, 
it can't be fixed until Christ comes back, so why bother? You know, so you've got these two kind of extremes. It's like we're going to implement this, this kind of perfect world now, or I'm just going to check out because there's nothing you can do about it. And I just felt like neither of those were acceptable. I'm not interested in being some you know, counter-revolutionary, overthrow the government and establish a monarchy guy. It would make for great. It would make for great fiction, uh, kind of fun, fun concept. If you're looking to write some type of fictional alternative universe, and at the same time, I'm I don't feel right. I say feel. I hate to use the word feel. It sounds emotivistic. It doesn't seem right to me to just check out and go. Well, I'm just waiting for the Lord to return. So I'm going to mind my business, make a good buck, you know, be polite, be be Christ-like to the people around me, and call it a day. You know, wait for my time. That seems immoral, irresponsible at, at, at best. And so listening to Mabry talk about Vogelin, I thought there's something in there. I don't quite understand it, but there's something in there. And so what I did is I ordered, um, <laughs> as I am wont to do, ordered a ton of Vogelin content. I mean, the main book is the one I just mentioned. It's the New Science of Politics. You know, just under 100, 200 pages. Explained it all a little bit. You know, it was um, published in 1952 based on a series of talks Vogelin, Vogelin gave at Chicago University uh, in 1951. But there's another five-book five book series um called Order and History. That's kind of like his major, it's a five volume, I say five book, five volume work. I mean, that's his major work. I bought that too. Now that's, it's massive. I mean, it's just, it's, it's massive. And he wrote it over a long period of time, if I understand correctly. I've got that sitting in my library. I have not cracked the covers on those. But let me tell you something about the new science of politics. I, I read this thing and it took work. It took work. I had to focus so hard on this book. I ended up reading it twice. I read it back to back. I read it twice back to back. So I started it, I don't know, December. I took, you know, it didn't take me a long time to read it. Uh, a little longer than, than I would have expected for the page count, but it took me a couple weeks. And what I found myself uh, having to do was a focused very hard on what he was saying. So first of all, so Vogelin uh, was born in Germany. He's a German-American academic. So at some point, I think as an adult, not as a child, but as an adult, he fled Germany or left Germany, ended up in the U.S. Um, and stayed here till his passing. But but I, there's something about the way that he communicates that's dense. It's very dense. Not, and I've heard that German, uh, at least in the past, I don't know about now, but German academics would often write in a very kind of obtuse manner because it was almost like the more, and I don't think Vogelin's doing this, but I think I've, I've heard people say the more dense and more confusing and hard to comprehend they made their work seem, the more people thought they were smart. Like, the, I, I don't know that that's accurate. That's hearsay. It could just be the way the German language is constructed and the way that German academics have communicated through the ages, the way that there's maybe a formal kind of structure or format that's kind of been bequeathed. I don't know what it is, but long and short of it, um, it's written in English. I mean, it's, he gave the speeches, the talks in English. 
it's dense though. So, so for one, that's one reason. So I just, just kind of deciphering what he's trying, not what he's trying to say, deciphering what he is saying. I'm trying to understand what he is saying. I don't want to make it sound like he's trying to say something. He's saying it. I think on a second level, the man's brilliant and his vocabulary. Uh, there was nothing about his vocabulary that was like out of my reach. There were most, most of them were words. I'll talk about there's, there's an element of vocabulary we have to address here. Most of them I've heard of before. It wasn't like I was reading stuff. I go, I've never heard that word before. But like he was using vocab words that you've probably heard or I've heard, but no one ever uses. Like you've heard the word, but you don't know what it means. No one uses it. And, and, and then he's using multiples of those words in a sentence to communicate an idea. So I often found myself having to almost decipher. I mean, I wasn't with a pen and paper that I was having to just sit and think. And I don't know if you've ever done this when you read and your mind drifts and you're like, oh, oh I kind of, you know, phased out. You couldn't drift with this. You, I, I could not drift. I had to focus. All right. So those are a couple of reasons. Lastly, about I mentioned uh, voc- another issue with vocabulary. He has kind of a whole glossary of words that he uses, either Latin phrases, Greek phrases, or words that um, that he may use in ways that aren't typical or classical. And, and then I would add on top of that, because he's a political scientist, there, there are words that political science uses that have very specific meanings. You can't just assume the meaning is a technical meaning. And so you add all that together and it was like, it was a lift. It was a lift. Now, fortunately, there were a couple of resources online where people had collected the kinds of words that he might use that, that had, that were esoteric, let's say. <laughs> and uh, so I could just refer to those kind of glossaries and say, okay, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reading Vogelin. What does he mean when he says, you know, fill in the blank? It's like, oh, okay, great. So I had to really focus. So what I did is I read it through once, I, and, I, and at the end of each chapter, I, I wrote these really rough kind of overviews of the chapter, which they're brutal. I, I threw them on my website under my short form uh, content. I want to take them down because they're just they're they're not even they're not even well thought out. I'm just trying to really awkwardly and clumsily articulate what I was learning as I was reading. I just wanted a place to think it through. I was compelled to publish it just because I thought it's a good discipline to hit publish. It just forces you to, to push because I get halfway through and go, okay, I think I got it. It's like, no, you got to finish this, but it's really bad writing, really bad writing. And then, and then I turned around, uh, of course, during this period of time, I took notes for my Zettelkost and initial notes. And then I turned around and reread the book. I realized like halfway through, it's like, I'm going to have to reread this. So read it through, kind of got my arms around it, then read it a second time to just really enjoy it and and to go a little bit more comprehensively into the ideas because I wasn't trying to build context. I had context at that point and I thought, okay, now I'm just going to, I'm going to take the full kind of, you know, train of thought of his and go a little deeper. So Great experience, but boy, did I work my my rear end off. All right, so we're about 23 minutes in or so, and I've been kind of building up to this thing. So what I want to do, starting with this podcast, I'll I'll just get into it a little bit today, and over the next handful of episodes, maybe one or two, maybe three, I don't know how many it's going to take. I don't have this mapped out. I want to unpack some of the ideas because I was really stunned by this book. I was blown away by it. And I want to unpack some of the ideas and talk about them. They're so relevant to today. 
and um, and share some of these with you. I, ju- I just think that that you'll find these interesting. Uh, and maybe even encouraging, although I don't think that Vogelin has a perfect, at, at the end of the book doesn't say, and here's what you need to go do, but it's very thought provoking and it kind of reframes, you know, our current situation in a way that I found helpful, very helpful. So uh, I think to start today, I just want to talk about one concept that I found uh, from Vogelin that was actually uh, uh, quite, quite interesting. And that is the concept of representation. Now, when I talk about representation, I'm talking about representative government. What Vogelin tries to do in all these talks is is make a distinction between theoretical ideas and concepts and and stuff in practice, the more existential, what does this look like when you live it out, uh, aspects of an idea. And so existentially or popularly, maybe is a different way to say it, uh, when we talk about representative government, we tend to think of what? <laughs> you and I probably think about democracy. We go, yeah, representative government, man, that's where it's at, baby. Uh, that's what this whole shooting match in America was about back in 1776. So representative government to us in the practical sense is this idea that government represents the people. And so we all come together, we cast our vote, and through the democratic process, we become represented by these representatives. You have a representative. You've got state representatives and federal and county and municipal and you have all these people representing you. I got to ask you a question. Do you feel very represented? Do you feel very represented? I, I would think if you asked the majority of Americans, the majority, they would say, no, I, I don't feel represented. And I would think... That's true for both sides. I think the left and the right would tell you no. I can't tell you how many times uh, in talking to a lefty during the Obama administration, how many times I heard from the how frustrated and disappointed they were in Obama. They had expected that they finally got their radical in there. They got their they got their radical. They were like, Saul Alinsky, we're all the way. This is like weather underground. We've done it. We got it. We got our guy in, and they're like, he's acting so centrist and so middle road. Now, if you look at Obama and his policies, he was anything but centrist. Yes, I mean he was great. I mean, he put a suit on. He was well spoken. I mean, you know, he 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 cut a nice figure as a president. There's no doubt. But he was no centrist. No centrist whatsoever. But if you talk to lefties, they were totally frustrated by him. He. he he, he wasn't doing enough. He was playing it too safe. You know, they had all these expectations. He wasn't even close to fulfilling them. They, they were like, I've had it with him. I'm not voting for him again. Of course, they did. But, you know, there was this idea that, like, he's such a letdown. They didn't feel represented by him. And, of course, if you talk to any right-winger during the Obama administration, you'd probably feel the same way. Maybe some of the folks in the middle were like, yeah, I kind of like him. No drama Obama. You know, there was no drama. There were no scandals. Of course, there were things going on. They just didn't, they just didn't make the light of day. But uh, that's that. So we tend to think of representative government as this idea that, that the people are being represented. So if you look at a monarchy or a dictatorship or some type of empire or, you know, fill in all the blanks, you and I would say, no, those are not representative governments. Only governments that, that have free and fair elections that are democratic, where all the adults have the vote, 
they get to cast their vote, they get to have their say in what they think ought to happen, that's representative government. That's what representation looks like, the vote. But what Vogelin points out and is very interesting, and I, I just never thought of this before, you talk to other people and other types of governments, monarchies, Marxist, communist governments, etc. They all claim that they were representing the will of the people. They were all representative governments. They all claim to be representative governments. And you say, well, how can that be? I mean, you, you get these you get these countries even with a name like um, the People's Socialist Republic of. It's the people. Like this is the people's government. You know what I mean? And and they would make the argument that the people are re- like. Yeah, you you Yankees, you want to have your vote. That's how you think the people are represented. But actually, that's corrupt. And there's a better way to represent the people and the people's will. And so what Vogelin, you know, argues is like, look, if everybody thinks that their government is a representative government on a practical level, then then it can't be that they're all right or they're all wrong. Now, you could argue only one of these is the right answer, but again, that's that's kind of missing the better opportunity, which is let's go to the theoretical concept. Let's not make this a competition between systems to see which one represents the best and ask what is a truly representative government in concept, in theory. And this can be a very important concept because it kind of sets up some of our subsequent discussions. But essentially what Vogelin says is a representative government is a government that represents the animating idea or truth of a given society. The societies come together, they kind of erupt, they, they come together and they become a society. You know, you don't just decide to make a society. You might have families and tribes and these tribes come together and, and language and religion and people. Next thing you know, you've got a society. But, but a re- representative government is a government that represents the animating idea or truth of that society. I'll say that again because I think it's just a very important, and I'm not reading this. These are my own words. Um, You know, I would encourage you to check out the book if you want, but the idea is that a representative government is a government that represents the animating idea or truth of that society. So so kind of the, the thought here is, the idea, the thought here is that each Society throughout history has had some idea, some concept, some truth that animates that society. That's kind of the underlying concept of that society. And so a representative government is a government that represents that idea. It, it legislates and rules and manages and leads that society based on the truth, the idea that the society holds. So you could say when a government starts to transgress that deeper idea, they risk losing power. 
They risk losing the society. See, a society will not, the individuals, the people of that society will not submit themselves to a government that does not represent the truth or idea of that society. If you look at our situation here in the U.S., you can say, look, I didn't vote for Biden. I'll I'll say it. I didn't vote for Biden. I didn't vote for Biden. And yet somehow I still obey the rules, or at least most of them, of this nation. And if the Biden administration puts out some type of law and I didn't vote for him, that doesn't necessarily mean that I refuse to obey those laws. Why is this? Why is it that a nation of people, why, why don't half the people who didn't vote for a guy just up and say, I'm not, I'm not doing anything this guy says. He doesn't represent me. Joe Biden, and this is the truth, Joe Biden doesn't represent me. Even when I vote for someone, I have to plug my nose. Donald Trump didn't necessarily represent me. And this is where you get a lot of the, and I'll say it, the retardation in this society because people equate like you voted for somebody as like, you know, you, you, you want to marry the guy. Like he's your savior, like everything the guy says. And I know a lot of people behave that way about Biden and Trump and Obama and Clinton. I mean, they did this, you know, they do this with these charismatic leaders and they get people like people get so hyped up on them. So hyped up that, that, you know, they, they treat him like he's Jesus. But for most of us, we're relatively sane. You know, we vote for a guy or a gal. We like, yeah, we like them. Sometimes we like a lot about them. Sometimes we don't like much at all about them, but we vote for them anyway. They don't necessarily represent us. You know, my goal in life is to stay married to Lydia. (laughs) I don't want to have three wives. I don't want to have billions of dollars and some TV fame And I'm not looking to be Trump. I don't want any of that. I want something different. So he doesn't necessarily represent me, but I voted for him. So I could say the guy I voted for, and especially the guy I didn't vote for, they don't represent me. I don't like some of the things that Lindsey Graham is doing. I'm living down here in in South Carolina. I'm I'm not even really, I mean, I'm, I'm technically now a South Carolinian, but I'm not a South Carolinian. I mean, I wish that I were. I love it here. I, I don't mean to say that I reject this state. I love it. There's a part of me that says, I wish I were born here. I'm grateful for who I am, but there's just something really lovely about this part of the South. There's some, there's some, some culture and depth that I'm just so grateful for. It's nourishing to be around. But like I look at the state representatives, I look at the governor, they're my representatives, but I don't, I don't feel like they really represent me. So you have to ask yourself, like if this system works, it, it works for some reason. It's not just because Joe Biden can break your doors down and kill you or imprison you if you don't do what he says. Obviously, look, the state has power. It has violence. It can, it can, it can, it can prosecute violence, it can strip you of your rights, it can imprison you, it can kill you. I mean, the state can do a lot of bad things, and it does. But we're not obeying the laws of the land because we're afraid that an FTA, um, FBI, FTA, ATF, I don't know, uh, FTA would be firearm, tobacco, alcohol, then ATF, 
alcohol, alcohol, tobacco firearms. I don't know. Um, I think it's ATF, FBI, CIA. We're not worried about them. We're, we're not obeying the laws because we're worried about them, you know, bursting the do- doors down and dragging us off in the middle of the night. Although that, that could be a thing. I mean, I, that, that, that seems, I mean, that you, you see more of the political enemy kind of banana Republic stuff happening. Like, you know, the, 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 the spectacle when they had to take the documents from Mar-a-Lago from Trump and, and this ridiculous, this ridiculous handling of the Joe Biden, uh, same thing, actually worse, because at least in Trump's defense, he was a president when he did it. Biden had no authority. As a vice president, you can't do that. I mean, Trump at least can make the argument, whether it's whether it's kind of pathetic or not, but he could make the argument with straight face that, hey, as a, as a president, I was going to, you know, um, declassify. I've got the authority. He does. He's got the authority. Whether he did the right way or not, that's up for grabs. Uh, I'm not an expert on that kind of stuff. But Biden had no authority as a vice president to do this kind of stuff, and it was just so haphazard. But I, but I'm not here to, tr- like, attack Biden. I'm just saying, you know, we're in a, we are in a state where the state uses its power uh, against those that it, it doesn't like and, and, and doesn't use its power against its cronies. Okay. But, but we're not obeying the laws of the land because we're afraid of violence. There's something deeper going on for us as individuals and as a collective society. We're obeying the laws because we still on some level have believed or do believe or want to believe, we're hoping to, that it's true, that our government represents the deeper idea, the deeper truth that we hold. Now, I don't, I'm not going to try to answer you know, it's a good question. What is that deeper truth in America? And I think that deeper truth is changing. I think in that, and I think that maybe we'll get to this in subsequent, I don't know. Um, but I think it's changing. You can see it in, in COVID. I'll, I'll address this now because I don't want to forget about it, you know, two episodes in. 20 years ago, 50 years ago, to be able to lock the country down, I think would have been near impossible. I think people just would not have had it. They just would not have had it. And I think the politicians would have never, I don't even think they would have tried. You just would not have a society of people that would have said, yeah, we'll submit to this. They would have said, they would have kicked you in your ass and said, look, wash your hands. Don't spit in people's faces when you talk. Don't lick doorknobs. If you don't feel well, stay home. And the rest of us, if you're healthy, do whatever you want to do. Like, just don't be a knucklehead. And we'll get through this. That would have been the attitude, I guarantee you. Something fundamentally changed in our society. And there's been a sense of terror and fear. A lot of it's stoked, I get it. But you can't stoke a fire when there isn't some smoldering. Like, you know, you can you can try to fan a flame, but if there's no flame, there's no spark, there's no heat, you're fanning nothing. Nothing's going to light. But if there's already something going on there, you can fan that. And I think there's been something going on. There's been a change. And you can say it's the millennial generation, which I think there are a lot uh, to do with it. I think um, I'm not blaming you millennials. I'm just saying that you, you have different values. Uh, I think it starts with the boomers and it goes all the way through. You know, the boomers would not have put up with this 20, 50, 30 years ago because they were younger and they were more virile and it was their time. But now that they're older and vul- more vulnerable, they, they were, they've been so self-centered from the beginning. But the boomers were terrified of this thing. They wanted everybody to get vaxxed. They want everybody to be locked up. And the millennials wanted to be kept safe. They don't want any hardship. They don't want any pain. They, they, they're terrified of this concept of pain and struggle and hardship. 
I know I'm being a jerk about it, but I'm a Gen Xer and tough. We're the we're kind of stuck in the middle between two really disappointing generations. <laughs> Gosh, there goes my listenership. Well, to the two Gen Xers left, what's up? How you guys doing? But something's fundamentally changed in our society as far as the the truth that animates it. When most of society was like, please lock us up, please destroy our employers. Please don't let us go outside. Please take away our freedom. Please force us to wear masks. Please inject in experimental drugs, gene therapy into our bodies. Oh my God, how fast can I get that and how many times? And then let me get on social media and virtue signal, virtue signal to the cows come home about how right and good and pure I am at the feet of his most holy Anthony. Yeah, whatever. So I think St. Anthony, uh, Fauci, I, I think you would agree with me like something's changed. I guess the question is, has the idea that animates our society changed? Has the truth that our society is oriented around changed? I think one could argue that yes, it has, or that it is changing. Hence the welfare state. A welfare state that, that most of us wouldn't have wanted 50 years ago, 20 years ago. So when you think about representative government, Instead of thinking about a representative government is one that represents the will of the people. According to Vogelin, you want to think about representative government as a government that represents the truth, the idea that animates a given society. Now, every society has different ideas and truths, different ways of seeing the cosmos different ways of understanding what is real and true and good. And this manifests itself over time. Now, in the next episode, I think we'll, we'll, we'll unpack this even more. You know, I spent a lot of time kind of building up to this discussion of representation. But I want to unpack this a little bit more in the next episode. I want to talk about a couple ways that that representation can show itself. Essentially, you can have more of a cosmological representation, meaning a society sees the cosmos a certain way, and that society wants to order itself around the truth of the cosmos. It's, a cos it's like a microcosm, if you will, a small representation of this giant cosmos. Another way to think about it is an anthropocent anthropocentric. But I, I struggle to say that word. Anthropomorphic, anthropocentric. Essentially, <laughs> that the society is a greater expression of the truth of men's souls. What is true within us? And how do we understand that? And as a society, how do we orient our society around what we think is true within us? We'll unpack those two concepts a little bit more in the next episode. But I want to give you a taste. We're going to be getting into some wild stuff. We're going to talk about Joachim of Flora, a guy from the 1200s, 13th century, 
uh, kind of a Gnostic, I, I wouldn't say a Gnostic, a Christian heretic in a sense that created this kind of end times, end times structure, I guess you'd call it, or, or symbolisms that to this day, to this day, survive and inform a lot of the ways we think. We're going to talk about Gnosticism. We're going to talk about utopianism. It's going to be, it's going to be really fascinating. So I want to at least lay the foundation about this concept of representation. What is a representative government? It is not necessarily a government. And it is, in the practical sense, you could have many different kinds of representational governments. You know, you could have a, the, the, the monarch represents... Um, represents the realm and the people of the realm. You know, he's like the head of this body. Uh, you have the kind of Marxist concept that that the uh, that the state represents the good of the people. You know, you've got the dem- democratic approach where uh, uh, democracy allows the will and voice of the people to be heard and and to and to you know drive the the direction of the state in various directions, et cetera, and drive the direction in various directions. Well, that, that's good That's good talking right there, Mike. But you get these various ways in practical terms that, that governments and societies see themselves as being represented. But Vogelin's point in the theoretical concept here, the deeper theoretical idea, which is true, this is a true concept. It's not necessarily like, well, his way is the best way. He's just saying, look, in every of these practical instances at its root, what representation really is all about is that the government is considered valid and sound and has authority and is is right when that government is representing the truth, the ideas that animate that society. So we'd love to know your thoughts. If you want to get in touch with me, just shoot me an email, mike at mikegaston.com. Uh, you can also go to my website, Mike gaston.com and uh, email me there through the contact form. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up for my newsletter. Uh, I do some freebies once in a while. I do have a paid newsletter that's called Broadside. That's 10 bucks a month. It goes out every Tuesday. Um, There'll be one coming out. I'm recording this Monday night, so one will go out tomorrow. Uh, So if you're listening this Monday uh, when I publish this, great, but you'll probably hear it Tuesday, Wednesday. But just go to uh, mikegaston.com forward slash get broadside. And uh, you can read a little bit more about that and sign up if you like. I'd love to have you join our growing community of broadsiders. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for your time. Love each and every one of you. Want to have you uh, along for the ride. So stick around. I think this is going to get better as we go. And uh, I hope that you find this as fascinating as I did. I just, this book is just, it's a bomb drop for me. I I shouldn't overhype it because that's always... Uh, dangerous in course. I don't know that I've got the juice to, to, to give it its due, but I'm going to do my best. So thanks for joining me, guys. Loving each and every one, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.